The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Jeb, it sounds like the FAA is going to finally legitimize your lifestyle here. Uh, well, yeah, it kind of does. First of all, a, a disclaimer here. Um, this policy um, that the FAA is struggling to, to develop or undevelop, depending on your viewpoint, really wouldn't affect uh, my situation yeah, the, because we're not a federally funded facility. This right. is all privately owned, privately operated, privately yeah. funded. Explain to James but what we're talking about here. We're talking about through the fence um, access at, uh, at uh, in fact, federally funded airports. Um, through the fence implies a lot of different things. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of many things to many people. In this instance, we're talking about property adjacent to the airport property. Um, and the airport allows um, um, airplanes, vehicles, businesses, uh, to cross-pollinate back and forth from private property to the airport property. The FAA, in its, and I'm, gonna, I'm making finger quotes, uh, uh, infinite wisdom, uh, last year decided uh, in a lengthy update of its um, uh, airport uh, funding guidance that um, through the fence arrangements, especially those involving residential developments, uh, were incompatible with uh, federally funded airports because of the long-range potential for um, noise complaints, for uh, incompatible land use complaints, things of this sort associated uh, with those airports. Uh, of course, they were ignoring um, the uh, likelihood, strong likelihood, that people who buy a house next to an airport you know, kind of sort of have an airplane and yeah. want to fly it from the airport. Um, what a concept. What a concept. What a concept. Um, wiser heads are prevailing. A, a good friend of the podcast, uh, uh, Brent Blue, who was immediately uh, and materially affected by this out at uh, uh, an airport he um, uh, operates from in, uh, I believe, um, eastern Idaho, uh, had, had led some of the fight on this. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that uh, the fight is over. Um, uh, yeah, but, no. Yeah, but according to um, uh, an article here on, on uh, the AOPA website, quote, a recent FAA decision to allow residential through-the-fence access to continue at Independence State Airport in Independence, Oregon, indicates the agency may be adopting a more flexible stance toward residential access to federally funded airports. And that's all good news. Uh, there's, you know, as with anything, especially anything with the FAA, the devil is in the details. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, are there any egregious strings attached here? Or? I don't know offhand. I would guess that um, this is just going to be kind of a, a test case kind of thing. The At least as far as Brent is concerned and uh, his particular situation in Idaho, um, uh, it, this is all the same FAA region, Northwest Mountain region. 
So that's a great start on, on some of this. Um, but um, to the extent that the FAA generates uh, from this a national policy, I think we've talked in the past about um, um, at, at the regional level um, how uh, national policy sometimes does not get correctly implemented um, uh, by various regions or certainly by uh, field offices uh, of the FAA and sometimes they have to be kind of slapped around a little bit to, to get with the program. Um, hopefully that will not be the case here and hopefully um, they'll take a um, you know kind of a see how it goes attitude here and but eventually implement this kind of policy on on a, on a national basis. Brent uh, would be the go-to guy on some of this and I have not had the chance to give him a call. Yeah. Pretty interesting. David, what's your take on the whole thing? Well, I, I think it's uh, an, another one of those niggling little examples of how somebody sitting in an office somewhere can be uh, introduced to reality by actually visiting some of the places that they were remote, remotely regulating. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that work, uh, getting the airport's office folks out to look at some of these operations uh, out there in the northwest region, uh, well, was a big help. Uh, and they looked at the, the FAA people, looked at the existing agreement uh, at this uh, uh, independent state airport and the uh, residential community adjacent to it and said, yeah, that meets the standard that we'd been requiring. Wow, what a you know, what what a wake up call. There, there was a, a requirement, a standard. The standard was met. Life goes on. Uh, where it seems to me the real test of the uh, warmer, friendlier FAA approach to through the fence operations uh, will come when someone wants to create a new one somewhere. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. So do we know what the nature of the through-the-fence access is at this airport? Is it one of these, you know, locked gates that's got a, you know, with a garage door opener kind of thing, or is it truly an open gate? I can't say. We don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know the specifics at this particular facility. We've also talked in the past about, I believe it was um, uh, Punta Gorda, Florida, which is just down the road from here, um, and how they had gotten uh, crosswise. Uh, apparently, there was a, a locked gate with you know some kind of a remote uh, control thing, um, and someone taxied through uh, the gate at some point from their private property onto the airport property and did not close the gate. And uh, unfortunately, Punta Gorda, uh, has scheduled airline service, so um, the TSA is is uh, involved, and uh, TSA um, did something, changed their local policy with respect to that airport, and and shut down the through the fence access. I don't know the status of that particular event. In other words, has TSA relented? Has there been some other compromise worked out? Yada yada yada. Um, but there, I guess the punchline is that there are varying degrees of through-the-fence access and there are varying degrees of, of concerns um, both the FAA, the TSA, and perhaps other agencies might have relative to that action. 
Um, at least in this instance, it seems to have been resolved uh, in a favorable fashion. Yeah. Uh, whether whether situations like Brent's will be resolved similarly, I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, it, it's not a case of, of uh, residential air park through the fence, but I spent a few days recently at an air, air, airport, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But um, I had a couple of occasions to go to drive a car um, through the security fence uh, at this airport. And uh, in each case, uh, they were the, the driver who had a, a card key uh, and waved it at the, at the device uh, on the outside of the gate. Um, they were religious about um, the procedure of pulling through the gate and stopping right. right on the inside of the gate and waiting for it to completely close before driving away. In one particular instance, when we were exiting the secure area uh, and you didn't need a card key, you know, the, the sense the sensed that you were there and opened automatically, there was a car behind us. And the person I was driving with kind of, you know, you know, shook his head sadly and said, well, I'm going to have to be real ass here and what he actually did, had to do was he pulled through the gate and then waited and literally blocked the other guy so the guy couldn't tailgate through on him um, did you so, just say ass i did say ass on the podcast i'm gonna have to think about what i'm gonna do about that but oh well um and, and and you know that's one of those that strikes me as whiskey tango foxtrot you yeah. don't need a key to, to exit and if somebody behind you is just going to pull up and exit you know, waiting for the gate to cycle as opposed to letting them on out. Yeah, obviously that's more of an issue on the way in. My, in my particular case, it yeah. was on the way out. But apparently, you know, they've gotten, they've all gotten religion from whoever it is who manages security on this uh, on this airport um, because uh, what, what, they were. Does involved. this airport does this airport have airline service? No, uh, no, it's a very active GA airport. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, mm-hmm. but uh, but there's no. I don't believe I didn't. I never in five days I was there. I never. I don't think there's any airliners there. No. Yeah. Um, anyways. Well, okay, it is good progress um, that the FAA is back down on some of their more stringent rules, strident rules. Uh, and well, then, while, you, while you were mentioning that uh, TSA has come up here, that, that agency we so love to, uh, to uh, uh, poke fun at and malign, uh, looks like there's going to be a, a third attempt to fill the uh, head job uh, at the Transportation <laughs> Security Administration. And maybe this time it'll take because the guy being nominated, John Pistoli, is already deputy director of the FBI. Yeah, you'd think he's gone through an F, you know, a security check of, or yeah. one or two. Well, right? yeah, yeah, we're pretty sure he's been through the FBI vetting process and background check. Although, uh, as we know, these things aren't always related to security or or skills. Uh, right, right. Uh, and he would already have to be kind of devoid of of any industry linkage since he's been with the FBI for, you know, 26, 27 years. Yeah, well, I was thinking uh, of politics, but okay, yeah. Well, yeah, but the, the politics on the on, on the guys that got whacked in the past because of prior uh, affiliations, associations, were outside business and political interests to what their old jobs had been. And in this case, the, the guy doesn't seem to have any of that kind of baggage because he's been with the uh, with the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation since about uh, I'm winging it here eighty three, eighty four, somewhere in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so and, and continually. Yeah. So uh, I, I press this as possibly good news because there's a whole lot of business in front of the TSA that's not moving because of a lack of a permanent. Right, right. Yeah, 
yeah. the agency, some of which we want to see move to our benefit because it's going to get some stuff off the table and into free play. So yeah. Yeah. keep your fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, getting back to the residential air park thing. James, you're awful quiet. You must have a lot of friends living at residential air parks of one sort or another. Well, uh, no, uh, certainly right uh, down the road here at Daytona, uh, you know, there's uh, our huge residential air park. And all over Florida, there's, uh, gosh, we must yeah. have, uh, I would think, probably more than just about any other state. It's, it seems that uh, way sometimes, yeah. But but, if, but, but as Jeb mentioned, go ahead, uh, that's James. That's right. That's not the problem here. It's the ones where people have been living and coexisting with municipal airports that are the real problem. Right, exactly. So, well, progress. We'll take any progress we can get. That sounds good. Hey, welcome, one, folks. One go step ahead. in front of the other. That's right. Welcome, folks, to episode 187 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday morning, May 19th, 2010. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar are uh, a handful of my good friends. Dave Higdon's out there. He's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. How are you doing this morning, David? Uh, squishy. Just absolutely squishy. <laughs> I know the feeling exactly. Why are you squishy? It's raining, I take it. Uh, yeah, again. Yet, yet, yet again, we seem to be, uh, we, we seem to be experiencing uh, uh, wave after wave of spring boomer weather, uh, about 72 hours apart for about 24 hours. Looks like we're in for another one. So anybody that wants to practice their instrument approaches, Today would be a good day. Yeah, you've had, but you haven't had any tornadoes yet this year, have you? I mean, in your neighborhood. Well, we've had uh, we've had some uh, close to Wichita. We had one uh, about a week and a half ago, visible from Wichita Midcontinent Airport. There were really? a lot of freaked out passengers looking to the west, seeing a tornado head their way. Yeah, and it disappeared when it ran up the against the back of what turned into a. a, a a uh, kilo alpha thunderstorm, uh, and uh, all over our region, uh, Oklahoma, southeast Kansas, uh, western Kansas, fortunately nothing of a uh, Greenberg, Kansas type of, uh, of uh, sky scope or damage around here, other parts of the country, uh, not so lucky. I'm sitting here going, Kilo Alpha, Kilo Alpha, what the heck is Kilo Alpha? Oh, I know what Kilo Alpha is. Uh, All right, okay. Kilo Alpha. Also here in the, is everything. That's right. Also here in the uh, virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Good morning, Jeb. Good morning, Jack. How's how's you? How's everybody and all the ships at sea? I'm good. I've just had a really wonder. Aside from having to drive a really lot, um, mm-hmm. which is it was worth the price. I had an awesome uh, uh, past week, and I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Yeah, I, but what are you I, up I to? You've a, been traveling all over too. I had a little had a little journey here over the weekend and whatnot. Yeah, just got assaulted by thunderstorms. We can talk about that too. Oh, really? But, uh, Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, let's, but, um, but, uh, um, let's finish up saying hello here. It, it's um, definitely summertime. Uh, yes. Uh, also with us this morning in the virtual hangar is James Winbrandt, uh, who I think I got from the context is still talking to us from his winter quarters in St. Augustine, Florida. Is that where you are, James? Good morning. I am indeed St. Augustine, Florida. It's finally warmed up in the past couple of weeks. We had a, a torrential downpour on Monday, but uh, everything's been fine since then. So all systems go. I am working on my exit strategy. I'll be heading north uh, in early June. 
Uh-huh. Oh. Okay. And uh, I want to catch up on what you've been up to. We haven't talked to you in a while, but uh, let's uh, let's see now. Let's finish. Oh, one other thing we've got to do here. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point in uh, cold and blustery, rainy, wet, nasty Nottingham, New Hampshire. Uh, Squishy. Yeah. I just got back from... Uh, from Pontiac, Michigan, uh, where I attended uh, AcroCamp. Uh, where they the, no longer make Pontiacs. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, and uh, I'll talk about that a little bit here. But uh, uh, let's see now. What did I want to talk about first? Where are we here? Um, James. I want to talk to James. James, we haven't had you on the podcast in a long time, um, only for technical reasons. Not because we don't love your company, uh, but uh, we've had a lot of technical challenges with you lately. Uh, that And thus, you are on, that would explain to people why you're on a uh, regular telephone line, as they say in the, in the industry, mm-hmm. a POTS line. Uh, actually, you're not on a POTS line. You're on a cell phone, but, but we won't get much more geeky than that. Um, and uh, so we apologize, everybody, but we can hear you just fine. Uh, what you been up to? How, how you doing? I, I, we talked to you. Were you actually, I'm trying to remember, were you on one of the podcasts in Florida? How soon we forget? I was. I okay. was. I know how exciting it can be for you guys and the things no. and all together, but uh, it was a highlight for me, of course, fun and fun. I'm sorry. Being on the cast. Uh-huh, uh-huh. all right. But um, were you uh, on one of the full ones or the short one? I, oh, this is terrible that I don't remember uh, this. It was the afternoon. Uh, well, anyways, tell us what you've been up to. What have you been up to? Well, I've been here in St. Augustine, as you know. I've been uh, kind of busy indoors with writing, but I have been getting out and about a little to do some flying and such. Uh, one of the some of the interesting flying flying I've done is, uh, you know, Dale Snodgrass is involved with uh, the MS seven sixty, the the Paris jet. Yes, mm-hmm. and he has put together a jet team uh, to uh, ship formation to help get word out about the Paris jet. And uh, so I got to go on a couple of flights with Dale and try out the jet. And it's great because, for one thing, you know, we're all waiting for uh, Cirrus et al. to finish their single-engine jets, Diamond, and and we're disappointed this appearance of Eclipse and whatnot. But right now you can go and buy a Paris jet for $650,000. Admittedly, it's not quite the cabin kind of setup that these other aircraft are promising, but you'll have the jet today or very shortly thereafter. They're refurbishing them up uh, in Calhoun, Georgia. And so you've got a 300-mile-an-hour comfortable airplane. It is a little noisy on the outside on the ground, admittedly. Big, Big time. But again... Uh, you can be out there joining the uh, the Jet Jockey Club. That's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, that cool. yeah. James, um, they're sticking with the original engines on these things. For now, yes. Okay. For now, they are not re-engining them. What's the issue there? Well, uh, I think it's probably a matter. The reason they would re-engine would probably be just uh, no more than for the sound, environmental, because it's yeah, it, certainly I, adequate. The, the noise is one issue, and I think those older engines, and I don't know which ones they are, I, I think because the Paris jet is, in fact, a, a uh, I think it man, was originally manufactured in France, um, yes. it's, it's kind of an oddball engine relative to uh, what has developed over time as far as uh, uh, industry standard power plants are concerned. Um, so it's it's not the most fuel efficient uh, uh, power plant out there right. either, there's, and there's two of them on the airplane, so... 
um, um, range is a little bit limited. Uh, um, um, useful load is, is consequently limited also on, on the Paris jet, but it does seat four, and, and you can, in fact, put four people in it and, and go uh, at least some distance. The uh, only reason I'm familiar with one is um, uh, there was a guy at um, um, local airport I frequent in Georgia that had one. Uh, uh, had, I think, is the operative word. I think he got rid of it. I don't know when, uh, and I don't know why. Um, but um, they're they're nice airplanes if you can afford the fuel bill and the maintenance. Yeah, cool. Well, that's the thing. They they are burning about 180 gallons an hour. Uh, yeah. Two sides combined, I believe. Uh, at lower altitudes, I think it gets down to about 130 gallons an hour at at the higher altitudes. Uh, I think 25,000 feet is the service ceiling for it. But uh, if you were to swap out the engines, uh, there you go. With I mean, you can buy a heck of a lot of fuel for the difference between what these engines are and what it would cost to re-engine the aircraft. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What else have you been up to, James? You've been writing any interesting stories that you can share with us, uh, covering any uh, interesting I things? Writing a bunch. Of, I I finally made my long-awaited trip also up to your area, Jack, uh, to speak to the fine folks at uh, Harvard at the School of Dental Medicine. Uh, that trip was... I didn't really... I knew you were trying to get up here. I thought it was to meet with Mike Goulian. I didn't know it was... Are you updating the dentist book? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not updating it, but I was asked to to speak to uh, a bunch of heavy hitters, uh, donors, and and other friends of the School of Dental Medicine at Harvard on the the subject of the history of dentistry, and I kind of concentrated on... Uh, the Boston connection, because quite a, a bit went on in Boston related to uh, the history of American dentistry, which really set the standard for world dentistry. So, totally off aviation topic. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I've known uh, this about you for that, years. That James, is very, and I, that is very, very cool. I still can't get past the idea that you're an expert on dentistry, but uh, or the history of dentistry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of, uh, kind of odd. Did you get to meet uh, uh, meet with Mike Goulian and company while you were up here? No, I didn't. It you're, was, you're, are you friends with them, or is it just a professional contact? I would, you know, I like to think of him as a friend, but I would say he more, you know, I know him professionally, and I wouldn't, you know, kind of waste myself off as a, a great pal of Mike Julian. But we've had conversations on other topics as well, and uh, mm-hmm. done other things. But no, there was. I just went up. It was a quick overnight trip. Uh, got up at 5 a.m. here in St. Augustine, drove to the airport in Jacksonville, took a commercial flight, connected in both directions, was there. Uh, I gave my presentation one evening, and uh, the following evening I was back in St. Augustine, wonders of, uh, of jet travel. Yeah, yeah, I guess, <laughs> if you like that kind <laughs> of thing. How's, how's the moon? You know, pardon? How's the moon? The Mooney, now, I guess right around this time last year, I had a lot of tales of woe because of the fuel pump. So maybe it was reduced to one tale of woe. I couldn't go anywhere because I had that bulky fuel pump issue. Fortunately, that has all been rectified with the installation of the the actual proper fuel pump, despite uh, the ignorance of many mechanics, Continental et al., that got fixed before I went to work last year, and the plane's just been great. Uh, 
it was wonderful getting it, you know, taking it down to Sun and Fun and getting it waxed. Uh, I know we talked about that a little down there. And uh, it's just been running great. It's a wonderful machine. I just can't believe uh, how fortunate I am to be its caretaker yeah. for the time because I, I don't really consider myself uh, its owner. I think a lot of us who have uh, airplanes think of them as their caretakers and whatnot. So I'm just thrilled with uh, how easy ownership has been these past few months. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, and before we move on, just let me let me be clear here for anybody because I know I'm going to get grief for this. The, the Twitter friends are going to give me a hard time about this. I certainly remember meeting with you and talking with you and socializing with you, James, in uh, in Lakeland. What I was having a hard time remembering was whether it was specifically in the context of a podcast at any point. Uh, uh-huh. It was, as always, a joy to get together with you face-to-face while we were yeah, in we, Florida. And we yeah, spent so, a, a yeah. good bit of time hanging out, so I'm not surprised that the events all blend together. Yep, yep. Yeah, between between uh, the podcast stuff and then the work I did for Sun and Fun Radio, um, I talked to a lot of people at at uh, Sun and Fun this year. It was a, it was a blast, right. a blast. I, yeah, I don't want to. You would, I, there have been a, a, a lot of different interesting articles, but I don't want to bore you all with all, all those things. But uh, yeah, I'm well, we, doing something now about the president's aircraft. So uh, talk to the former pilots of uh, Air Force One and Marine One about all their setup, how they get hired and all their jobs and whatnot, among a number of other interesting articles mm. I've been working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it, it, where I was in Pontiac um, over the past week or weekend, long weekend, um, we noticed a couple of, you know, and I wish I could give you the exact aircraft designation. I think of them as DC-4s, but they were turbine-converted DC-4s. And uh, apparently they work out of uh, some outfit that does cargo of some sort there in and out of Pontiac. Um, and at some late in the week, someone said, "Oh, you know, would you like to go get up close and personal with those airplanes? Because you know those airplanes were one of those airframes was Air Force One at one point." He was trying to convince Whoa. me. Does that make sense? Does he said it was? Uh, I don't know Eisenhower's airplane. Does this make us make ring a bell to anybody? I uh, Eisenhower was hits. the first person. Go ahead. Go ahead, James. Well, I was just saying, Eisenhower was the first person to have an Air Force One. Uh, I thought at one point a Constellation might have served as Air Force right. One, but... That's what rings a bell uh, for me, too, yeah. Um, it kind of depends on what you refer to as Air Force One. The, the call sign Air Force One, I think, was first uh, used relative to Eisenhower. And uh, there were uh, actually a succession, two or three constellations that were used um, uh, by Eisenhower as the, uh, the the flying White House, if you will. Uh, one of them, uh, I've got a picture of a buddy, well, Lee, uh, my mechanic, the uh, uh, the man in black, the satanic, the satanic mechanic, mechanic. <clears throat> um, standing in front of one out in, in Tucson uh, uh, just last month or so. Uh, Columbine 2 or 3, I forget what the nose art said, but mm-hmm. it uh, it's it's still in one piece. It's it's kind of in a boneyard out there, but uh, uh, there is a move to try to maybe uh, resurrect it. it. Putting all that aside, um, um, Roosevelt flew on a on a C fifty four, which is the the military version of the DC four. Um, maybe that's what what this was. Maybe yeah. And um, there was you know Truman also uh, was on C fifty four. I don't know about the. Um, 
the constellation. I, I just the dates Lee elude me, but uh, uh, I think Eisenhower. In fact, Jamie, you'd probably be the ultimate arbiter of this. I think Eisenhower was the first to fly on something called Air Force One. And who was the first president to fly? Oh, um, did we that's an interesting the- question. I don't know the answer well, to it. Perhaps that was the Roosevelt aircraft before they were referred to as Air Force uh-huh. One. So maybe yeah. it was yeah. President's airplane, but I, technically oh, there was, not. You Air know Force what? One. I could hear. I could hear. I could almost see. Dave's eyes twinkling while he asked that question. I'm getting the feeling it's a sneaky, it's a trick question. Go it's ahead, a trick David. question, yeah. Go ahead, David. It, it is kind of a trick question. Uh, 1910, Theodore Roosevelt. You know, I wanted to say Theodore Roosevelt, and I'm trying to decide if that was not too early. Go ahead. What were the circumstances? Uh, he was at a, uh, a, a field near St. Louis. Uh, he was no longer in office. That's the hook part of it. And uh, did a brief flight at a... Uh, country fair uh, at uh, Kinlock Field outside St. Louis in an early right flyer, uh, October 1910. Cool. Uh, then his uh, relative, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was the first in office to fly and used aircraft quite extensively. Of course, going to meetings to on the other side of the Atlantic and submarine warfare being what it was, uh, flying whatever aircraft it took to get over there was considered preferable to an ocean voyage. It, it, it just we, one we, more we aside. Understand that. Yeah, one more aside here, and then we probably have exhausted this topic. The first presidential pilot uh, was a gentleman by the name of Henry Tift Myers. Who oh, not, okay. not coincidentally is um, um, who is uh, uh, the namesake of the airport in Tifton, Georgia, into which I fly often. The airport has a bunch of uh, memorabilia on display uh, from that era, uh, including uh-huh. pictures of him and and the C-54s, etc. Not, not simply where you flew. That that's where you learned how to fly, isn't it? That's where. I, that's actually where I learned how to fly. Yeah. 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 Cool. But they didn't have the memorabilia at the time. Well, speaking of learning how to fly, uh, I, I spent the last five, six days uh, at AcroCamp. We've talked about it a bit on the podcast over the uh, past months. Uh, AcroCamp is the uh, f- the uh, program that, that uh, uh, the Airspeed podcast Steve Tupper put together. Um, he came up with this wild idea about, I don't know, six months ago or so, to, uh, to find four uh, individuals and dump them into a four-day, four-and-a-half-day intensive aerobatics course uh, where they got a chance to, uh, uh, you know, be trained in all of the basic maneuvers and perhaps a little beyond the basic maneuvers uh, and, uh, and in theory, would come away at the end of the four days with some basic ability to fly acro. Uh, and... Uh, and, and Steve just put a huge amount of effort into getting this whole thing organized and to selecting the proper uh, group of what do they call campers, uh, the four uh, 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 trainees. Uh, and then uh, and then a handful of us uh, hangers-on, uh, well, actually, I'm one of the hangers-on. There was also a, a group of staffs, if you want to call them that, uh, that helped actually run this thing. And um, and then they, they videoed almost every aspect of this thing. They put cameras in the airplanes. They had handheld cameras floating around. And we spent four and a half days at uh, Pontiac uh, uh, Airport, uh, also known as Oakland International, Oakland County International Airport, I believe is its formal name. Um, 
and uh, and just watching these folks go through this training program, it was just both a blast and fascinating. Uh, I've, I've really got to stop this. I've got to stop finding myself situations where I can be totally immersed in aviation for long periods of time because I'm getting spoiled. I just really need to figure out how to live my life that way all year round. You know, <laughs> not unlike the way you guys do. Uh, this was just we had so much fun at Acrocamp and. Um, it, it just hanging out around the air. I mean, I literally dawned to dusk for four and a half days at the airport there. And, uh, uh, I mean, I could just go on and on. And, in fact, I'm going to. I'm probably going to write something for, for somebody about the whole the whole experience. And, of course, there's going to be a movie. But, uh, um, you know, it was a blast. They, uh, they started out at the beginning of the first day. All four of the uh, campers, as they're known, um, were they, they were selected for being, uh, having little or no aerobatic experience. Uh, the most that any of them really had was a couple of them were CFIs, um, so they had to do spin stuff. Um, but other than that, none of them had any acro. Uh, they ranged from um, a 300-hour pilot uh, who was... Uh, you know, relatively new at flying, if you will, all the way up to a multi-thousand-hour airline pilot. Uh, and then uh, in between, there's a, like a, a, a woman who is a, a corporate pilot who flies for a fractional outfit, and there's another woman who is, a, uh, is a, an active CFI, uh, and, uh, um, you know, just kind of this range of people, two men, two women, um, and but with all with relatively little acro and they started out the uh, four days um somewhat anxious about the whole thing um and obviously uncertain about how you know they would they would perform if you will um how they would react physically and and skill wise to this whole thing and and to watch them over four days grow and get these skills and gain this confidence and and overcome their demons, if you will, not to over-dramatize it too much. Um, but it was almost that in, in one particular case. And uh, and to watch them at the end, by the by the end of the four days, you know, they're all just hankering. Go, let's go do it again. Let's go do a hammerhead. Let's go do a tail, you know, a torque roll tail slide. You know, uh, let's go fly the. Uh, they had three aircraft avail- available to us. We had a, a straightforward Citabria, we had a Super Decathlon, and we had a Pitts. I think it was a two, uh, 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 two B. Is that what it's called? S two B. I think it was S two B. And. Uh, uh, two instructors, uh, Barry Sutton and Don Weaver, uh, were the uh, instructor pilots. Uh, and the uh, campers were Jim Rodriguez, Michelle Cole, Linda Meeks, and Paul Berliner. And uh, I don't know. I, I could go on for a long time. I just It was a terrific experience. It was, it was a blast socially as well. Uh, it was really fun to hang out with all these people for four days and to hang out at the airport and uh, you know watch them fly and grow and learn. And I learned a little bit about acro. The big thing I take away from this, in, well, one of the big things, is uh, I'm one of the people who's a little nervous about the idea of acro, the idea of flying an airplane, anything other than as level as I can keep it. And uh, and watching these folks grow and watching them kind of, you know, progress from their, you know, varying degrees of, of anxiety about this up to on the final day, you know, they're all going, let's go in the pits again, you know, or, you know, I want to go do a tail slide, right? They, they watching them evolve like this, if you will, um, get past their, their demons and learn about, you know, how it all works was, uh, was really a, a revelation to me. And it's made me much more comfortable with the idea of, uh, pursuing this kind of training at some point in the future. So, uh, it was cool. I'm babbling. It was cool. I had a lot of fun. 
Um, well, I think uh, it is very valuable training, and I think that uh, you're right. For I know for some of us, I, I find it terrifying to do aerobatics, especially you know as you're starting out and sort of the first command is. I mean, you start out with spin, so okay, get the airplane to fall out of the sky, and yeah. it is not natural. That's easy okay, for me. <laughs> pull the power back, pull pull the stick back, and wait till it starts dropping out of the air. It's not something you one is naturally ready to do. It seems so. You do have to overcome quite a few demons, but you quickly gain confidence in yourself and in your airplanes, and uh, it's great training. I, I'm curious how many. Uh, Flights a day would they make? I assume they're pretty short flights, and I assume they kind of then there's yeah, a lot they, of briefing and debriefing. That, exactly right. Um, uh, they they started well. They started out the whole week with a, uh, a relatively long, almost an almost two hour ground school session, uh, where they had you know kind of a standard lecture kind of thing with with uh, slides on the screen and whatnot, and then introduction to parachutes and and barf bags. Quite frankly, um, they were really interesting. Um, you know, I think one of the most practical things that everybody was frightened was was the idea was that I'm going to throw up. And uh, and the instructors did a really good job of of really kind of I don't know what the right word would be demystifying or de anxietying ing ing <laughs> is there a word there someplace um, yeah, yeah. of this of just, just kind of making the whole deal that listen throwing up when you're doing acro is not that big a deal all right it happens from time to time it's not mm-hmm. an embarrassment all right uh, it may not be a badge of honor all right but it's not something you need to be overly embarrassed by and uh, and they actually part of the ground school was the proper way to throw up in an airplane you know how to use the barf bag and how to coordinate with the instructor and you know you know the you know how to sense that it's about to happen and um how, and, how to make sure that the bag is between your mouth and the ground wherever the ground yeah, may be exactly right yeah they they did have a they, they would make a distinction between throwing up and throwing down um, which <laughs> kind of entertaining um so uh so that was part of the ground school. And by the way, no one threw up in the entire week. That's um, cool. Yeah, um, there were wow. some 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 uh, uh, you know cases of uh, of motion sickness, if you will, and that sort of thing um, that that you know that temporarily debilitated people. Um, but uh, but nobody actually threw up. Um, ironically, the closest anybody came to throwing up was Will Hawkins, who was acting as the uh, director of photography for the movie. And uh, at one point, we were driving a car. Um, uh, along the ta- the parallel taxiway, and we were we were trying to pace an aircraft that was t- taking off and shooting video of it as it as it took off, and Will was sitting in the back seat, um, sort of in an awkward position to start out with, aiming a camera out the window, but he had a monitor in his lap, so he was kind of twisted sideways, looking down, the, moving a camera left and right. In other words, he was just this was like a prescription case for vertigo, right. and. Uh, and and the second run down the taxiway, he told us that he very nearly threw up right then and there. Um, but that's that's as near as we can tell the closest anybody came to uh, to hurling, as we used to say, as we would we'd call it. Um, so so I don't know what was I talking about? Uh, it, Yakking up straight pins. Yeah. Oh, um, so ground school, uh, and that was on the first. Uh, that was the half day, if you will. Um, then they all climbed in the airplanes. They, you know, got a feeling for how the parachutes worked. They got training on how to how to use the parachutes, how to exit the airplane, and so forth. Then uh, on the uh, on the second day, which is the first full day, um, they started doing flights. 
And yeah, each flight would consist of a of a pre briefing or a briefing, um, you know, what we're going to do, what what the expectation is, and so forth. Um, and you know, sometimes with a little model airplane, sometimes using doing airplane hands, you know, and uh, and then they'd climb into the plane, they'd take off, they'd go do their flights, uh, and uh, and then they would come back and and debrief immediately after the flight to talk about it all. Um, and uh, and your original question was how many um, they. Um, basically three flights a day per camper. A lot of flying. Um, these yeah. two instructor pilots were just like did yeoman duty. Uh, they were get, they were looking a little ragged towards the end of uh, the, you know particularly the second day when it was really starting to you know wow we've done a lot of flying here. Um, who who told, were the instructors? This was uh, Don Weaver and Barry Sutton who are both are they locals. Uh, they're both locals. They're in Pontiac um, okay. and uh, part of some an FBO called the Aviation. Sta- you know, they call the FBO the aviation station, but now that I stop and think about it, I believe that the, the training operation is called Oakland Academy or Oakland Air Academy. I apologize. I should know that, but I, I, I'm sure if you yes, Google it, you, should. you could find it. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, three flights a day is was sort of the, the – the, everybody didn't achieve that every day, um, but three flights per student per day um, for four days. And, uh, you know – now, all told, I think the final number came out to um, the AcroCamp flew a grand total of 40.6 hours of, of aircraft wow. time wow. Um, in, in four days. So, uh, yeah. And was this strictly aerobatic training, or, or was the, there an emphasis at all on ups, what they're calling upset training now, or was it strictly the exhilaration of doing well, aerobatic maneuvers. Certainly, there's a lot of upset training involved there, but it, the uh, the goal, the, 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 in fact, it was an acro training. Um, um, none of these guys had tailwheel either; uh, were tailwheel endorsed. So uh, the, it, it actually started out by getting some tailwheel training, and uh, um, two of the four actually tailwheel soloed. That was one of the milestones that they might, you know, you might accomplish throughout the week, is to actually get your tailwheel endorsement um, there. Mm-hmm. And t- two of the four were actually able to accomplish that. Um, a third almost did. Uh, the weather started to degrade towards the end of the fourth day, and uh, they ran out of time for for uh, her to go out and actually demonstrate what she needed to demonstrate. So she'll have to go back and with her own instructor or with uh, or come back to these guys. Um, and then, and then the fourth didn't quite progress to that stage um, of uh, you know being able to solo solo the tailwheel, but uh, um, they all did terrific to the best of my understanding uh, in the air, uh, flying the the aerobatics and uh, um, you know they all you know, I was, you know I was mentioning how they they debriefed with the instructor at the end of each flight. The thing that became particularly interesting is that is that midway through the second day. The, the students started debriefing each other. Um, there was a lot of kind of self-training going on. Um, it, it, this is a really interesting dynamic. Um, you usually think of doing air aviation training one-on-one, just an instructor and a student. But when you learn in a group situation like this, where there are other students going through the same program you are, you have an opportunity for them to compare notes and to clarify things with each other and to, in fact, instruct each other. And so more than once we caught the students talking among themselves, explaining things and not just sharing the experience, but, but, but you know, having a little study session, you know, where they 
talk about what they just did and how it all worked and clarifying things for each other. And it, it was a great thing. I, I just you know can't wait to see the movie. It's going to be a while before the movie's done, but uh, but uh, it was a terrific experience. And uh, you know before we did this, when Steve first announced it, he said, "Jack, you should apply to be one of the students." And I'm going, "No, I'm not going to do that. That's not for me." But after watching these folks for four days, I'm thinking maybe it might be for me. Maybe I could do this. You know, it's. Uh, certainly makes you a better pilot um and uh it's given me a lot of ideas about my flying and uh i you know now that i'm back i can't wait to go out and try and apply them so i guess perhaps it's too early to go ahead i'm sorry no jeb you go first um perhaps it's too early to say but are they going to do this again there's there's lots and lots of talk about doing it again um in on one hand it's a little bit you know in in is in steve tupper's case it's a little bit like going up to a mom who just came out of the delivery room and said so when are you going to have your next child all right Right. um he he's a little ragged right now um but but ragged with a big smile on his face uh he he just had a blast doing this um and he's got a lot of work left to be done on this one but there's all sorts of talk about doing this the instructors are jazzed about the idea the students are jazzed about somehow having a role in the future one um and and i would love to be involved in a future one uh, somehow some way so there was a lot of talk about about where and when and how to do it um quite frankly they've been talking about florida as a possibility the, the the closest we came to having trouble with this was the weather. Um, they actually were got got a scare in the few days leading up to it that the weather was going to go bad and we weren't going to be able to do it. And we actually shifted it by a day. We pushed it forward one day, and we found a really great weather window. I mean, we just were blessed. It was awesome. But uh, it was actually raining while we were doing that ground school class that, that first evening. And then it cleared up for three and a half days, and then it started to... to uh, to cloud over and, and get pretty blustery the last half of the last day. Um, but there's a lot of talk about doing another one, um, doing maybe a series of them, uh, and uh, um, with or without the video part. It's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of talk. I, I think it's, it's an idea that's proven itself on many levels, and now it's just a question of letting Steve catch his breath, let the instructor pilots catch their breath, and, uh, and then talking about where we want to take it next. You know? Cool. Yeah, J- uh, James, you had a question? Well, I was curious, as as Jeb was, about whether it would be done again, and also about the uh, finances and whatnot. Did did people pay for this? Was it was it underwritten? Because yeah. there's uh, the thought of getting a production, uh, commercial production. Uh, right. Um, it, it was largely. I don't know how to characterize it. Dutch treat. Um, basically, everybody paid their own way on this particular one. Uh, in particular, the students. The students uh, uh, paid for the airplane time. They paid for the instructors uh, and and whatnot. Um, uh, a lot of the vi- the movie production costs, and it was really done on a shoestring. There weren't an awful lot of those, but a lot of the movie production costs um, came out of uh, Steve Tupper's pocket, or or maybe the you know airspeed podcast piggy bank. I'm not sure, but. Uh, um, you know, and that's another factor that has to be considered. Is you know, so what is the, as we say in the biz, the the the, the business model um, for this kind of thing? But uh, but I'm I have little doubt that there is a business model. Um, they got, uh, you know, they were only able to take four campers. They got 51 applications from people who wanted, knowing that they had to pay their own way every nickel of the way. 51 people wanted to be involved in this as as students um and so there's there's a you know this potential here um 
and and it was a tremendous training experience certainly for the campers it really was a tremendous training experience even for those of us who were simply observing um, and just kind of standing at the back of the ground school and listening to the debriefs and uh, um, there's something here and uh, you know uh, I, I'm I'm anxious to watch Steve continue with it, and even to be involved a little bit, um, if possible. Sounds like a sounds like a television series to me. Yeah, well, you know, the thing about doing it as a television series is that you're going to have to make. It's interesting. We were we were one of the things as a video guy. The video guys you know, working with Will and 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 Steve Tupper on the video, um, and then myself there um, as a as a potential you know journalist writer. I'm trying to figure out what to write about this. We were trying to figure out what was the quote unquote making a little air quotes here story, you know, what was the conflict, you know. We were joking around about who was the villain, you know. Mm-hmm. If you watch reality TV, if reality TV were doing acro camp, one of the campers probably would have been uh, characterized as being I don't know what a jerk or a villain or a you know whatever and and the A in in kilo alpha. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, um, and so. Uh, and and we were reluctant to do that because you know these were all really nice people and uh, so but and if you're going and you can get away with that if it's a one shot you know you can kind of find a way to make to, to make the story be all warm and fuzzy if it's a one shot story but if you're going to do it as a series you need more conflict and we were lo- talking a lot about what the conflict would be we were we were trying to decide if it was going to become more competitive you know like uh, as as the as the week progressed you know various trainees got you know voted out of the sky or something like that you know we said we said dogfight you know if you get shot down you're out or something like that well but, you uh, know, the way the way you do it is you know you get some sponsors and and whatnot but Whoever places first in whatever whatever metrics you employ, whoever places first gets their training comp. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 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 there needs to be some kind of competitive event. Mm-hmm. Well, like you know, the, at, you know, at the end however, of this thing. you're graded throughout, and you know, right. and maybe you know, and the challenge, and you know, points deducted for, and the instructors get points if they can make you vomit. And you get points if they can't, right, et cetera, right. et cetera. And you know, and the evil, the evil flight instructor or you know, overseer who can, you know, that's right, like that's right. You are the weakest link. Build all right? sorts of stuff into it. Yeah, it, all Tupper well, needs to do is give us, you know, a brief to do this, and we'll come up with a program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we control you guys are the horizontal. Fun with this. We the problem with that kind of thing. Yeah. The problem with that kind of thing is that while that would make for better television, it would make for a lesser training experience. Make a lousy training Much experience. lesser. Yeah. Much lesser. <laughs> and and you know as, as, as said, is frequently the case in life. Yeah. So I don't know. It's gonna go someplace and uh um all I know is that everybody had just an awesome time and uh you know, I I, I could go on forever. I got I've already gone on too far. What's going on in the world here? Let's see now. The, le- the next item on our list here says business aviation in action, Haiti crisis. Dave, you put this on the list. What's this all about? What's going on? Well, big earthquake uh, in uh, just off the coast outside Port-au-Prince. What, was that last year now? Yeah. yeah it seems like it. In some ways, it seems like a long time ago. Sometimes it seems like just the other day. Yeah. The... Uh, recognition that's come to uh, the uh, general aviation interests that responded. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say this in the past tense because this is an ongoing uh, uh, ongoing relief effort yet today. 
But uh, Congress recognized uh, the uh, efforts of, uh, well, the, the, the declaration said business aviation. I, I think it should be broad enough to say general aviation in hauling doctors and nurses and medical supplies and food and materials for shelter and all and all uh, to uh, Haiti for distribution to the, uh, the victims of the earthquake, the people that lost homes, which was significant around Port-au-Prince itself. Uh, and we've seen some recognitions like this in other cases recently where uh, uh, states or gu gubernatorial declarations or congressional uh, declarations uh, targeted at recognizing general aviation's contribution to American society, quality of life, the economy, uh, it, it's kind of a it, it's kind of a uh, no brainer for those of us that you know live, eat, and breathe this stuff. That uh, folks with airplanes are generally pretty big hearted and ship in wherever they can on whatever is needed. Uh, and after last, uh, what was it, two thousand early two thousand nine, late two thousand eight, when anybody that used a private airplane for anything was being vilified and, 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 and labeled as uh, some kind of uh, uh, oh, narcissist uh, for having to use their own airplane. Uh, it's, you know, er everyone from members of Congress uh, beating up on the auto companies who were really dumb uh, to President uh, uh, Obama uh, beating up on Wall Street fat cats for their use of the jets, some of which is true and really dumb, uh, to see some recognition or the positive aspects of GA. I'd uh, like to see more of it. I'd like to have people that participate not be shy about standing up and saying, you know, when you're, when, when you're at the barbecue talking to some people you've just met and They've, they've got some opinions to express, uh, not being bashful about giving them facts to knock down their opinions. So uh, congratulations to, uh, to all the folks that have participated in uh, humanity owes you a chip of the wing. Yep. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. That's a big thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a story in, uh, in, on the AvWeb website. Uh, uh, which, <laughs> as if there's something other than the AvWeb website. Um, there's a story on AvWeb uh, that says, uh, Can 94 uh, unleaded replace 100 low lead? TCM thinks so. Is this uh, is there some progress here, or is this just some sort of update story? What's going on with this? Um, and and is it better? Um, it so, depends. It, yeah. As with so many things like this, it, the quick answer is it, it depends. Um, I did a little piece for... Um, June's aviation safety on this overall topic, uh, just kind of a, uh, a call to arms more than anything. The uh, um, Backing up just a tad, um, the, the reason that this is topical uh, is that uh, in April, the Environmental Protection Agency, and I think we talked about this in a recent episode, the Environmental yeah, we, Protection, yeah. Yeah, Protection Agency uh, put out what's called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking on uh, eliminating lead from aviation gasoline. Uh, that's, that's not to say that anything like this is imminent, uh, but the EPA um, um, wants comments from the public, uh, not only you and me, 
but those say in the petroleum industry who who kind of sort of know a little bit of know a few things about how to blend fuels um they're they're monitoring various airports for uh uh lead content in the soil and in the air um da 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 before they can do anything there has to be a finding of human endangerment by the EPA and then if there is i think we can probably safely assume uh that there there will be such a finding on on one level or another um then the EPA and the FAA have to sit down and um the EPA would then ban uh leaded fuels uh, the FAA would then figure out, you know, the dates and, you know, and all this kind of thing that would that would occur uh, after which no more leaded fuel would be sold. Uh, and the rest of us would be uh, out there scratching our heads trying to figure out how we're going to get takeoff power on our turbocharged uh, IO540. Um, there are three basic uh, um, un- unleaded fuels out there competing for some of this. There's the 94UL, which is uh, something that Teledyne Continental Motors, TCM, is pushing. There's the Swift Fuel, and there's a G100UL uh, that is being uh, developed by uh, GAMI, the, uh, the folks at General Aviation Modifications, Inc., out of Ada, Oklahoma. Um, I've had some extensive conversations with some of the players involved here, um, including AOPA, which, of course, is, is a player. And it's not at all clear uh, to me which direction this is going to go, except to say um, whoever comes up with some money to do the lobbying on this and, and, and uh, greasing some palms, et cetera, um, will likely be uh, the winner uh, of this of this sweepstakes. Um, I can't begin to, to suggest to you who that might be. Um, 94UL... Um, is a good solution for low compression, low power engines. It is not a good solution for higher compression, higher powered engines. Um, the, the rule of thumb is, is what some call the 70-30 rule. Um, 30% of the, um, I'm sorry, let me back up. 70% of the fleet, piston engine aircraft fleet, 70% does 30% of the flying and and is of sufficiently low compression and low power, they can exist just fine on 94UL. The other 30% does 70% of the flying and will have a problem with uh, lower octane fuels like 94UL. Um, solutions uh, to that problem include but are not limited to derating the engines um, things of this sort. Once you start derating engines, then you have to kind of sort of go back and look at recertifying the aircraft, um, uh, certainly the engine-airframe combination, uh, because you now have lengthier takeoff rolls. Uh, you have to be a lighter airplane to, to get the same performance, for example. Your range may suffer because of the different energy densities, um, different fuels will have different weights. Um, there are all uh-huh. kinds of, of, there's a cascade, if you will. Is one of these fuels more appropriate for the 30%? Um, well, the Swift fuel yes. has been run Swift, yeah. successfully in, uh, in in higher compression engines and turbocharged engines, uh-huh. I understand. And, and, and 
the, the gammy fuel, the GA or the G100UL or whatever it's called, uh, is another uh, uh, option. Basically, what we're talking about is is you know getting the lead out literally and figuratively. Uh, we have to replace it with some chemical combination that raises the octane. And there are any number of different ways to do that. The question becomes, um, what's going to be the most economical way to do that? What's going to be the most sustainable way to do that? And um, what is going to be the the combination of factors that um, um, no one wants to see, you know, two or three fuels uh, um, at a general aviation airport. There are safety concerns. There are there are uh, economic concerns with doing something like that. Gone are the days when we had multiple grades of aviation gasoline, and, and no one really wants to go back to that. Um, so what we have to do is come up with a with a a common denominator here um, that involves you know what's available at a refinery. What what are refineries accustomed to producing? Um, where do they get the stock to produce that that product from? You know, are they getting it from corn? Are they getting it from from crude oil? Or are they getting it from some other source? Um, and there's a lot of lot of different complications here. It's not just about uh, whether or not the aircraft can can uh, uh, maintain full power. Um, well, some, but, some of this for some of these engines could be resolved right now if both the engine companies and the petroleum suppliers would get over their, apparently, I, I think, observational, ob- observably unfounded opposition to auto fuel in aircraft engines that can use it. Because we've got almost 30-year history of aircraft being STC'd to use 87-octane uh, unleaded auto gas and doing it quite successfully. There's been no rash of accidents attributable right. to it. There's been no evidence that it's contributed to any safety problems. Uh, it is, uh, unfortunately, a limited solution to those aircraft that with engines that are compatible. And aircraft with engines that are compatible aren't necessarily using fuel systems that are compatible with the auto fuel. Right. Otherwise, there'd be even more aircraft out there eligible to do it. Uh, and I don't really see a problem. I don't see what the hang-up is in going back to uh, two fuel supplies on the field when so many airports still have that old 80-octane truck or that old auto fuel truck sitting there that they can't use because they signed a new agreement with a fuel supplier that bars them from selling auto fuel anymore. Mm-hmm. No one wants the liability is the quick answer. Um, well, it, that's well, the part that 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 that's unfounded and ungrounded. Well, James, James, go ahead. Yeah. Well, this this news, I believe, is sort of all predicated because uh, Continental came out and announced, indeed, they're working on these engines, and, and I believe some folks expected them to have made this announcement uh, last year at AirVenture at Oshkosh, and in fact, they talked about some experiments they were doing. Uh, at the time with some power plants with uh, 94 Uniform Lima. And one of the issues then is now is the incredibly low supply and high cost of that fuel. I think it was like around $9 a gallon, and, and they were saving fuel for sure, but 
obviously with a cost like that, not enough to save them money. Uh, so that's also one of the issues here. What's it going to cost to create these fuels? And then uh, with biofuels, are we going to see that incorporated into these, or is that really blue sky at this point? Yeah, that, those are all very good questions. Uh, the biofuel thing, the sustainability of an aviation fuel, um, is is I, I would I would hazard a guess is is perhaps not a, a high priority. Even the Swift fuel, which some have billed, and I think Swift itself does bill as a sustainable uh, alternative, um, only portions of the the chemical mixture uh, come from renewable sources. Um, as a consequence, it's not strictly a, a, a sustainable fuel in, in that in that you know pure green sense. Um, you know, in in the world of nice to haves, that's certainly one of the the things that would be nice to have here. But um, overall, for the entirety of the industry, we need something that's a universal, b economical, and c um, uh, easy to make. Uh, that we can get from just about any kind of a refinery. There are some solutions out there, um, but the, the there's the um, the pendulum needs to be swinging a little bit more here to get over center, and we're not there yet. We're still in the uh, oh the touchy feely kind of phase of this, and it's it's a mystery to me uh, who who's going to win out. I, I can say this though, if if I was Lycoming. I wouldn't be all that enthused with, with TCM's 94UL offering. You would not be? I would not be because it's TCM. Well, when I hear this announcement and they announce that they've got a four-banger, 230-horsepower, 94-uniform Lima engine, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I've got a 210-continental in my airplane. From a practical standpoint, you know, kind of looking in the future, so would this... Four cylinder, would it fit in my plane? What what would the cost be? You know, would it deliver the the same kind of power, or is it you know? I, because I believe they can turbocharge them. So, you know, the the announcement that they're working on this raises an awful lot of questions that I think we're all waiting for answers to. And, and those are all good good questions that that you as an airplane owner should be asking. Um, and some of those answers you may not like at this stage of the yeah. game. Um, yeah. That's just the nature of the beast. So, um, in my situation, I'm I'm flying a non-turboed engine, but it's a relatively higher compression and uh, obviously more power. So, um, I'm I'm in that uh, that thirty seventy split where you know my kind of engine does thirty seventy percent of the flying. Um, um, but is only thirty percent of the fleet, and uh, there needs to be, you know, a solution uh, there. Also, I will, I will certainly be lobbying for one. But um, I, I will say this: uh, I like uh, what the Gammy Boys uh, have come up with. I like what they're saying. I like the science. I like the logic behind their their uh, thinking here. And um, not only do I, I respect their opinions. But they, their solution uh, is one that kind of meets the rest of the criteria here, um, with the exception of sustainability, and even that can be can be perhaps addressed down the road. We need to move on here, but um, just quickly, what's the next step we're going to see happen in this whole process? 
Well, you're going to see a lot more testing. You're going to see, um, um, you know, a lot more announcements, a lot more stories like um, uh, can 94UL replace 100 low lead uh, appear in the aviation media. You're going to see, uh, I'm, I'm kind of planning to do one here in the near future of, you know, going out and, and flight testing an airplane. You know, one tank has 100 low lead in it. The other tank has one of these uh one of these options, uh, one of these newer fuels in it, experimental is plastered on the side of the airplane, and you go out and fly and, and you know note the performance, note what the engine gauges are telling you, and I should say engine monitor uh, as opposed to gauge, uh, you know, as far as CHTs and EGTs and, and, and things like this, and how well the, the fuel performs. Um, there's there's a lot of that going to be going on here in the next couple of years. Um, the... Um, the EPA advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, they want public comments by early June. Uh, after that, it's going to be a couple of years uh, for the EPA to crunch through some studies. Um, after that, they'll go to a formal notice of proposed rulemaking, which would be uh, the logical next step, uh, timing for which is uncertain. Um, after that, they will collaborate with the FAA and the and uh, come up with some grand solution for a a date uh, sometime in the future. We have time, uh, but there it is clear that um, a number of external events are driving uh, the push here, or a renewed push, if you will, for alternative general aviation fuel. Cool. And yeah. I think that the winner. When everything gets said and done, is going to be decided less by what one engine company or another likes and says, sees as a solution for a lot of its products, uh, and, and 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 more along the lines of the outfit that comes up with a fuel that is a single point replacement for all of them. Right. Compatible with all the fuel systems, compatible with all the engines. I mean, I appreciate the idea that to use 94UL in a high-compression-engined aircraft, all I really have to do is go out and put a lower-compression, larger-displacement engine in it. Uh, well, and, and to have that to have that suggested as part of the solution so I can use 94UL strikes me as a little bit of wishful thinking and something right near the ludicrous level. Exactly, because it, 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 in, with my airplane, uh, James is a little bit different, but with my airplane, uh, there really isn't such a solution out there. Yes, I could go to an IO5, I have an IO520. Yes, I could go to an IO550, but I would bet you dollars to donuts that uh, when the smoke clears, you know, I put an IO550 in the airplane, uh, I'm not going to have the same uh, power that I did with the IL-520 running Hunter Lowlet. Well, we've seen there, this in some OEM lines. Uh, sure. For example, when Cessna brought back the, the uh, three-piston singles that it, it uh, uh, resurrected back in 96, uh, all of those aircraft sported an engine with a larger displacement than w what was standard when they production sunsetted back in 86 it wasn't to make it compatible with uh, lower octane fuels it was to reduce the rpm at which point the engine produced full power 
to lower the noise footprint to get around noise requirements in Europe and other parts of the world. But the same philosophy, you know, being suggested as a way to make your airplane compatible with a new fuel, uh, I just don't see a lot of guys, even if it produced the power, for example, in the, the Cessna 182, 235 horsepower engine or 230 horsepower engine was the standard when the in- aircraft sunsetted in 86. When Cessna brought it back in 96, it had a much larger displacement engine and still was only rated at 230 or 235 horsepower. Uh, well, mission accomplished on the noise footprint part, but it was still uh, of a uh, compression level that put it in a kind of gray area for anything but 100 low lead. So I, I look for the winner to come from the outfit that can produce a one-size-fits-all application. It's compatible with all the engines, compatible with all the fuel systems in the airplanes, which is a different issue. Right. Uh, because that's what's prevented some aircraft with the right kind of engine from using auto fuel because of components in their fuel system, like fuel bladders that aren't compatible with auto fuel. Uh, but t- if the outfit can come up with that, and I don't think 94UL is that. I mean, we already I don't know think it doesn't so work either. in high-compression engines. It's been around for over a decade now and has yet to get any traction because of that issue. So yeah. I think it's going to come it, from a different direction, like the Gammy Boys or the Swift Fuel people in Indiana. Uh, in in nine, 94UL is basically, as I understand it, and it may be in this story, 94UL is basically um, 100 low-lay without the lead. Yeah, that's and basically it. The difference is six octane points. And uh, there are other ways to skin the cat. There's, there are other things going on here, too. Um, Dave hit on some of them, but one of the biggies is um, the ASTM standard 400 low lead, uh, and which has you know, a variety of different uh, uh, things going on in it. And, um, and those is are 40 fewer standard points that have to be met to be considered yeah. compatible. Is, is there a fuel out there, an alternative fuel, I should say, that meets um, all of uh, the ASTM points, or or does it meet enough of them that the ones that it does not meet are insignificant? Um, there is I, one my, that already I, meets I, all I, of them. I, I know the answer, and I think Dave knows the answer also, um, but um, it, it kind of remains for there to be a, a center of gravity approach here on, on some of this, and we're not there yet. David, no. you said there's one that meets all of them. Which one? I believe there may be two, but I do know for sure that the Swift Fuel got ASTM uh, review of its fuel, and it, the fuel was considered uh, to meet all 44 ASTM requirements and went out for testing. And I'm talking about the pure Swift Fuel, not the test Swift Fuel that they've been passing right. around for cost purposes, which is a petroleum blend. The mm-hmm. the the product target is for a wholly green bio, uh, bio-generated fuel using sorghum or uh, uh, sawgrass, wood chips, uh, other types of biological substrate that can be distilled, processed and distilled into this uh, uh, aircraft fuel. And Swift Fuel got ASTM approval for its fuel, I believe, early 2009 and started flying with it. Uh, one of the revelations that came out of that process was confirmation 
of Swift Fuel's prior claim of uh, higher energy dis- density for its replacement than the 100 low lead itself. About 15% more heat content, uh, which is helpful in terms of power and, and, uh, and, and, and range, uh, and kind of helped offset a little bit the fact that it has a higher density than 100 low lead. It weighs slightly more. Well, we've got two engine manufacturers, primary engine manufacturers, in Lycoming and Continental Piston Aircraft Engines, and one of them is embarked on a program here of not only engines, but the fuel for it. So what about that? To what extent is Continental, while they are pushing their development, potentially, let's look this idea, part of the problem, because how eager are they going to be to say, you know what, we've invested X millions of dollars and all this time, and you're right, 94 Uniform Lima doesn't work. We're going to give it up and give up our development of everything we've done based on that fuel to go with a fuel that makes more sense, even though now we don't have an engine that works with that, et cetera, et cetera. So what about the dynamic of a company that is developing the engine working on a fuel that may not be the best answer? Exactly. Well, we know, we know from history that uh, TCM and, and, and uh, uh, AFCO Lycoming have both gone down the road with some major projects and major expenditures of bucks uh, and abandoned them uh, to never bring the product to market because of various failure points. Uh, for example, uh, there was some news rippling around the, the, the aviation sphere last week about Teledyne Continental Motors uh, having a, a, a new diesel engine. Right. Uh, that it will uh, have certified later this year, or early next year. Well, they bought the engine from a, a, a familiar company in Europe, and this was after they had, for years, worked on their own diesel project uh, under the uh, uh, General Aviation Propulsion System project that was sponsored partly by FAA, partly by NASA, and partly by industry. Uh, the uh, the engine never quite made its mark in terms of durability, power output, fuel consumption, even though they did some really innovative things with how they were constructing the engine and getting full power at much lower RPM. Uh, TCM cashed that program out finally and now is getting into the diesel engine business by buying a European product and certifying it here in the States and working with OEMs to put it in new airplanes. So we, we know that saner heads can and do prevail from time to time, and I, I, I think that that's going to be the direction this eventually heads, where the industry is going to, like Jeb said, they, they don't want multiple trucks, although I don't see... The huge issue with it, we used to do it just fine. Sure. Uh, and when an FBO's only got one guy on the ramp, only one truck gets used at a time, no problem. Uh, but the, 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 the ultimate solution is going to come down to uh, the, the, the outfit that comes up with a replacement fuel that works in all these high compression and low compression, is compatible with the fuel systems, and doesn't have represent such a drop in energy density 
that you're immediately looking at a 15 or 18 percent drop in effective range because the heat content's not in the fuel. Right. Okay, shout outs. Uh, David, tell us about Jim Burnett. Oh, my. Jim Burnett was the uh, chairman of the. He was a member and chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, he was on the board starting in 81, uh, was chairman 82 to 88. And if I remember right, he, he didn't, uh, didn't leave the board until 89 or 90. Uh, he was on the board for quite a long time. Uh, probably one of the more colorful, more controversial, and more opinionated members of the, uh, uh, or chairman of the NTSB ever to come along in its long history. Uh, it was my position privilege to cover the NTSB during most of the years that uh, Mr. Burnett, Judge Burnett, as they called him back in Arkansas, was chairman of the board. Uh, did not suffer fools lightly. Uh, respected pushback opinions, uh, raised the visibility of the board and some of its safety issues uh, to a level that I don't think had been seen before, and uh, not always kind to the agency, the transportation agencies that the NTSB was working with, sometimes to their great consternation. And I want to read a a quote sent to me by a former NTSB board member who uh, also knew and worked with uh, uh, Judge Burnett. Quote, his immenseness had a large ego, a formidable in- intellect. He had a passion for safety and the refined skills of a master orator that made him effective in trying to do the right thing and making a difference. Those who knew him well know that he had a great respect for the people who would disagree with him honestly and provide a factual basis for their opposition. Uh, This person and myself were both fortunate to be able to call him friends. Uh, He died this this week at age 62 in Arkansas. And as my uh, friend, former board member, said, he's too young to be gone, too soon to be missed. And there are times when I think that the uh, NTSB could do better by having another chairman out of the same mold. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for uh, telling us a little bit about him. That's uh, that's very nice. Did either of the other two guys, you guys know him? I didn't know him personally. I, I obviously, um, um, he, I was paying attention uh, to things at the NTSB when he was chairman. And um, that was a time of... of uh, um, change at the NTSB, change in the industry, uh, much of which Burnett led. Uh, he, he's clearly, clearly left his mark on the agency and on transportation safety generally in this country. Huh. Well, um, let's see now. Changing the t- tone here a little bit. Um, Oshkosh is coming, and uh, they have, uh, I guess, just recently turned on online ticket purchase, so you can buy your tickets in advance. Uh, 
get it all lined up. I, is there a discount if you buy in advance? Is that how it works? Yes, there is. Yeah, okay. So you want to uh, to go to uh, airventure.org uh, and find your way to the uh, online ticket purchase area and get your tickets now so that you can save yourself a couple dollars and uh, uh, you'll be have that that piece of the puzzle well, out of the way. Someone said something here about reserving Camp Scholar space. I don't think you can actually do that. You can get your you you get your your reservation, if you will, quote unquote. But but it's just uh, paying the price and so forth. Uh, you actually have to go there physically to to save your space, right? Uh huh. Yeah. So only the South Africans have their a permanent space. That's true. There, that's right. There are very, very few groups. There are just a handful of groups that have somehow reached this uh, this higher level of whatever, and they have a permanently reserved area. But in general, you've got to go. Um, and uh, a la, um, who was it? Uh, 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 Jonathan Hardwick's uh, joke earlier about when he was visited there during the winter about how he had wandered out into Camp Scholler to put down his stakes and his and You're his right. uh, yellow rope. Um, right. So, anyways. yeah, I I would would be surprised to learn that there's not a a camping uh, vehicle of of one sort or another already having been pulled into Camp Schuller. I have uh, no doubt. Flying. I have no doubt. I have yeah, no doubt. I, I, oh not. yeah, some of the early bird volunteers are already there at work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> David, the around the world LSA guys are making progress. Where are they? Well, last I heard, they were in Florida. Uh, they'd made landfall there, I believe, around Boca Raton, and were getting ready to wind their way with only a couple of stops getting across the U.S. Of course, when you've got when you've got a uh, uh, a CT with 120 gallons of fuel capacity, a Rotax 912 that only burns about three and a half an hour to four an hour at cruise. You can go a long way between stops. They surely are so not taking. So, do they get a waiver for that to, to carry that much fuel? How does that work? Oh yeah, there's. Say if it carries 120 gallons. Well, the, uh, these are these are uh, uh, Swiss registered LSAs. Uh, so that paperwork was taken care of on that side of the pond, and. Uh, on terms made them acceptable here in the U.S. Now, maybe they're only maybe they're adhering to the LSA rules here in the U.S. in the U.S. per se. Thirteen twenty. There is no fuel limit in the LSA rule. Remember that. There's only a weight limit. It's not like the ultralight rule where there's a five gallon limit on fuel. Uh, there's a requirement under the LSA rules for a minimum fuel capacity. That's based on uh, weight and horsepower, but uh, the only parameter here that limits the upper end of your fuel capacity is your gross weight. Yeah. Well, these guys are surely not taking the short way around the world, are they? No, uh, no, they definitely aren't. Uh, they seem to be uh, uh, taking a routing that's going to guarantee them way over the equator circumference distance by the time they get back to Europe. Yeah. All right. Uh, other shout-outs. James, you said you had a couple. Well, well, we're on, uh, since we're on the subject of LSA, you know, the what is being billed as the first annual LSA holiday has been scheduled uh, at Sebastian Airport, uh, sponsored uh, mostly by the folks at LaCrosti Aviation. That's coming up June 4th uh, through 6th. And they've been having monthly Saturday events 
at Sebastian Airport uh, since even before they moved their headquarters up there a little over a year ago. And one of the interesting things they've been doing is really reaching out to the community to get people who are beyond the aviation aficionados to come out to the airport. And they have been very successful. They've been getting larger and larger crowds. Uh, they've had uh, the Boys Club and Girls Club get involved as uh, beneficiaries of these charitable events that they're holding there. And they're getting quite a bit of ground support now from the community for the airport, which is a fantastic development. And it's all kind of going to be showcased at the uh, what is being billed as this first annual LSA holiday. There will be a number of manufacturers displaying their LSAs, but more it's about what do you do once you get somewhere with your LSA. So they're going to be having kayaking on the intercoastal waterway. There's going to be river cruises, golf, skeet shooting. There will be seminars on LSA maintenance, but also on how to fly fish. So they're really trying to kind of involve everybody, people that don't really care that much about aviation, people who are very much committed to it, and uh, create a real community. So I think that's going to be a great event and want to make sure people have that on their radar. Very cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. Any other shout-outs, anybody? One quickie. Yep. Uh, Happy 90th birthday to uh, uh, Kilo Lima Oscar Uniform. Louisville Spoman Field. Mm-hmm. Uh, turned 90 last uh, weekend. And uh, was at one time Louisville's uh, uh, air carrier airport. was its only airport. Uh, and is uh, to this day, although it was replaced as the air carrier airport over 60 years ago, to this day is a very viable, very busy general aviation field uh and has managed to hang on and survive and thrive despite being pretty much completely locked in by urban development, business, and residential. So uh, hats off to Abram Bowman, who started the field back uh, uh, 90 years ago, and to the folks that the two FBOs, flight schools, flight clubs, that are making it uh, work yet today. Way to go. Very cool. I've flown into this beautiful airport. And it really does kind of remind you of the old days of aviation. Yeah, it really does. It's got some of the old hangars, the old uh, terminal building. Uh, it was a uh, site where the Civilian Pilot Training Corps was teaching America's soon-to-be World War II pilots uh, back in the late 1930s. Uh, and I don't know if it's still there. It's been a while since I've visited the neighborhood. But there used to be this great little bar right across the street from the terminal where the student pilots could walk across the street after their lessons, get a beer and a sandwich, uh, and very often get their picture taken. The place used to have hundreds of photographs of the early days of aviation and some of those uh, soon-to-be military pilots there in their training uniforms. It's where my uncle learned to fly prior to World War II and, and set him on the path of flying B-17s. So I have a, a, a little bit of a warm spot in my heart for Bob. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Hey, definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, 
James Winbrandt, thanks for visiting us with us in the hangar. Sorry it has been so long, but we'll have to make sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, James is an author and an aviation journalist and a musician and an his- expert on the history of dentistry and a whole bunch of other things. James, uh, you still don't have a very active web presence, right? We get to Google your name and uh, or search on Amazon for your various publications, right? Right, but yeah, I, how b- I, I, I have a website. You You do or you don't? I, I do not have a You do not. Oh, we have to do something about that. Uh, do you have any upcoming uh, magazine pieces or articles that we can look for? Oh, a lot. Yeah, a lot will be uh, Business Jet Traveler, where I am right now, I guess, the Inside Charters columnist, among other things. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Plane and Pilot, uh, also this new Pilot magazine. Uh, I've got something will be coming out. Not for this Oshkosh, but on the international uh, visitors at Oshkosh and Errant Space Magazine, uh, some stuff in uh, aviation aftermarket defense and some others. So a number of things coming out in the near term. Very cool. Very cool. It's great talking with you. Well, thank you so much. Great being with you guys, always. Jeb Burnside is uh, an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, jeburnside.com and... uh AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Uh, yeah, Aviation Safety Magazine, that's the one. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> Not, nothing wrong with me this morning. No, no, right. That's what we get for doing this in the morning. That's right. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, AvBuyer.com, DaveHigdon.biz, AEA.net, a uh, couple others, uh, Google. Dave Higdon and, and, and ignore the physics writer and the golf writer. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can... Vi- I'm going, to try, I'm going to start that all over again. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? The best way to get to be old and crotchety like Jeb and me is to fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. I love how he says that. It just works perfectly for me. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Yeah, it would work for you. AMFFN. Kilo Alpha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>